eventually we we climbed out of the cloud layer and we were greeted to this just amazing amazing view looking over this cloud base and uh, just seeing all of the 3000 meter peaks sticking above the cloud so it was almost like everything else had been obscured except all those mountains that we'd actually already climbed or were yet to climb so i didn't think uh, that would actually be possible this is Aotearoa Adventures with your host Abigail Hanna, the podcast for everything you need to know to travel New Zealand. I talk to photographers, van lifers, mums, students and everyday Kiwis to hear their inspiring stories from past adventures and to share helpful tips and tricks for your travels. Whether you're visiting Aotearoa for the first time and live on the road or you work a 9 to 5 and have lived in New Zealand your whole life, you're guaranteed to learn something to plan your next getaway and get a new excitement to explore more of this beautiful country I call home. So grab your hiking boots, hop in the car and turn up the volume. Kia ora, today I've got with me Alistair and Hamish. Um, this duo has enchained New Zealand's 3,000 metre peaks. Um, I had no idea what that meant when I first heard it, but um, I'm sure they will tell us all about it in just a sec. Um, Hamish and Alistair, do you guys want to introduce yourselves? Yeah, so my name's Hamish and I'm based in Queenstown and... Uh, I grew up uh, in the outdoors a lot and, and uh, pursued adventure racing and multi-sport through a large part of my sort of late teens and early 20s and then, um, yeah, more recently got into the Alpine and, and uh, yeah, I was lucky enough to join Alistair for this um, great adventure. That's awesome. Yeah, my name's, my name's Alistair. I live in Christchurch, work as an engineer here and have been into tramping and running through high school and got into mountaineering through university outdoor clubs and um, slowly gained experience in mountaineering and part of the New Zealand Alpine team, which is a mentoring program, um, mm-hmm. which helped with my progression through mountaineering. Always just enjoyed going on big adventures and I've uh, done a lot in the Mount Cook area, Araki Mount Cook area, and um, it was quite a cool idea that we got to attempt climbing all of the 3,000-meter peaks. Now, I met Hamish through the adventure racing scene, so oh, it was cool. great to have him along on this trip. Um, that's really awesome to hear a little bit about both of you guys. Can I can I take it back a little bit further to your childhood as well um, and tell me a bit more about where your sort of sense of adventure started? Was it something that you're – parents sort of instilled in you from a younger age or was it sort of in those later years uh yeah so um my parents are very outdoorsy um we did a lot of skiing growing up and uh, a lot of tramping as well and uh yeah definitely i think my my exposure to the outdoors as a as a youth you know in my younger years was very very good for laying down a sort of a foundation of like basic skills but also just that appreciation and stoke for being out there and and uh, exploring these amazing places mm. um, we're very lucky in New Zealand like I, I grew up in Taranaki um, and so we would spend a lot of our time up the mountain there uh, climbing the mountain or um, exploring the, the tracks and trails and and I was uh, very lucky to have a lot of freedom with that as well I remember going on some uh, quite fun adventures with just just a friend and I when I was about you know 13 14 would do sort of overnight trips and and just be out there um, wow, that's amazing. yeah it was, re- it was really cool so yeah I think that was a big 
yeah, big sort of learning period and sets you up well for, for future. That's awesome. I feel like there's not many 13-year-olds these days that would get to sort of go on overnight hikes by themselves. Yeah, yeah. It's quite quite good with my parents, I think. Mum was probably a bit worried, but I think Dad was just saying, oh, no, nah, that'll be right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's a mum's job to worry, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> what about right. you, Alistair? Well, I grew up in Auckland, so quite far away from the – the bigger mountains of the South Island. And as a family, we would just do normal things like camping, summer camping near the beach, mm-hmm. going for walks, nothing uh, outrageous. Um, I didn't really get into tramping until high school doing the Duke of Edinburgh okay, scheme, yeah. which involves tramping as one of the components as well as sports and skills and community service. Yeah. Um, and I also was interested in running. My my family has a, a running background. I've got a cousin who's an Olympic track athlete. Oh, but wow. with my running, I always wanted to differentiate myself away from that so that they wouldn't compare me to his <laughs> sub four-minute miles. So I got into trail running. And, and so the physical aspect's always been interesting to me, um, combining the physical aspect of – you know, endurance sports with the adventure of going mm. to remote places. So I think that's where Hamish and me have a similarity there. And that's sort of born out of our childhood upbringing, a bit of racing, yeah. but also a bit of adventure. And I think more emphasis on the adventure. Yeah. How did the two of you first meet? Probably through the, the adventure racing community. I think it was yeah. um, through some teammates of mine who were doing the God's Own Adventure Race, Hamish and I were on similar teams. Okay. Yeah. Is and that then, quite um, recently or a little while ago? 2015. Oh, yeah. But uh, Hamish was getting into mountaineering at the time. He was asking me some, for some advice. And at one point he and another friend of ours, Sam Manson, asked if, if I could take them up Araki Mount Cook. Yeah, and then I realized I said, "Oh yeah, sure." And then realized quickly realized I'm not a mountain guide, and they should <laughs> go away and get the experience on their own. And Hamish sort of diligently went and did that behind the scenes. Maybe Hamish, you tell us about that. Yeah, I'd love to hear the journey of how how you both started alpining. Yeah, for for me, I was very lucky to to bump into Alistair at that stage because I think like lots of people. Um, you know, you can have this sort of attraction and desire to go to the mountains, but there's lots of barriers to that entry and, and a lot of uh, knowledge that has to be acquired before mm. you can start to feel sort of more confident and uh, capable of going out on your own and exploring. And um, so, yeah, I, I actually reached out to Alistair uh, when I was just, you know, I, got, I was at this point where I was like, I really want to do this stuff. I, I don't know how, but I know Alistair knows how. So I, I reached out to Alistair. And initially it was like, yeah. oh, can you maybe take my friend and I on a trip? Like we'll, we'll go on a, on a mountain trip with you and we'll, we'll pick your brain and learn some stuff. But as Alistair said, it was, um, yeah, it was not his place to sort of uh, guide us on our, uh, you know, first sort of trip in the mountains, uh, you know, in the big mountains. And um, so, yeah, yeah, so he he actually gave me some really good advice about um, getting into sort of uh, sport climbing. Um, and then progressing mm-hmm. into trad climbing, so traditional climbing where you place your own protection. Mm. Um, and by doing those two uh, things, I would learn a lot of skills with ropes and uh, and and basically learn those same skills that you would then apply 
to alpinism uh, and being in the mountains. So that was great advice. And I, I um, yeah, I'd sort of just sort of finished up really racing. I, I did a lot of multi-sport and event racing quite competitively and quite seriously for about four or so years, five years even. And um, okay. I was really yeah. ready for a change. So I was excited to to get really stuck into this new sort of world. You know, I was very excited to get into it. And so I, I definitely trained pretty hard and worked worked on that advice that Alistair gave given me. And so, yeah, it was, it was really cool to then eventually be able to go out and climb with Alistair. Well, that's really cool to hear. I suppose it totally makes sense, but I, in my head, I hadn't connected the fact that rock climbing and that kind of rope skills transfers to alpining. Um, I mean, I've done, I've done sport climbing and it's too scared to try trad yet. <laughs> That's really cool to hear that sort of progression. It was really nice to get that sort of encouragement and direction from someone who had, who had a lot of experience. And, um, I knew coming from Alistair that that was like a good path to follow. And, um, that's something that's really special, mm. I think, in, in mountaineering and, and alpinism is the sort of mentoring that happens. And as Alistair had mentioned mm. earlier, just the, the Alpine team situation where Alistair's received some amazing mentorship from being in that team environment and for him to be able to pass that on to me was, uh, yeah, it was amazing. And um, I think that's something really special and there's a really cool culture uh, around that. Um, I think they've done well with the Alpine team yeah. set up. That's really cool. Yeah, I think there's there's a lot of different components that add together to when, when you want to do more technical alpinism, there's there's the rock climbing, there's the tramping, and then mm-hmm. there's just moving over basic snow and ice terrain. Mm-hmm. And so you can kind of separate that out into different components and just practice rock climbing, you know, in good um, dry and warm conditions, and then do pure ice climbing where you go to a frozen mm. waterfall in winter and just practice going up 20, 30 meters of ice yeah, and then you can that terrifies go, me so much. <laughs> and then you can go on a long transalpine trip, which is more about moving through the mountains, more like tramping, but over glaciated terrain or snowy mm. passes. Yeah, and then for what we were trying to do with this three thousand meter peaks trip is kind of putting all those different things together. And so um, it was good that Hamish went away and practiced those skills, and and I did the same. I I came from this tramping and trail running background. And then in the North Island, got introduced to the mountains in Rapehu and Taranaki. Yeah. Um, and then at some point, my um, sort of mentors at the time said, if you want to go any further, you're going to have to learn how to rock climb. <laughs> and it's a it's a bit difficult to pick up rock climbing at first because there's a lot of technical skills and you have to learn them from someone. So I was lucky to have my own mentors at the time. But I learned, you know, the basics of sport and sport climbing and trad climbing mm-hmm. over one summer. It was actually when I injured my ankle from running, the silver lining was that I realized I could rock climb. So I spent the whole summer <laughs> rock climbing instead of running. There and then that, all of a sudden they opened the doors to mountaineering because then I, I knew how the basics of pitching and abseiling, yeah. Yeah. Uh, making anchors, that sort of thing. So they all tie together. I think that's why mountaineering is such an engrossing activity because mm. so many different aspects. Mm. Well, that's really cool to hear. Um, Alistair, where did you sort of find some of these mentors? Was it mostly through the clubs that you were part of? 
Yeah, so I was part of the Auckland University Tramping Club, AUTC. Yeah, yeah. And the cool thing about the university clubs is this culture where people often stay on past um, their undergrad and there's often postgrads or people that just stay around with the club for a long time and have gained lots of experience and then they pass it on to whoever is most keen and enthusiastic. Yeah. So yeah. there was a guy, Owen Lee, he he said, does anyone want to climb in the South Island this summer? I said, oh, yeah, I'm keen. I'll be down there for an internship. And so he said, all right, we'll go climb Multibrun, which is one of the 3,000-meter peaks. Okay. And uh, I didn't even know what trad climbing was at the time, but I quickly learned. It was a, <laughs> quite a gripping experience. And Multibrun is one of the 3,000-meter peaks we later climbed. We yeah. turned around um, near the summit that first time. It was almost ten years ago. Wow, that's so cool to hear. But yeah, you've got to have you've got to have mentors. I think that's a yeah. strong theme in this. It's all about passing on knowledge and skills and wisdom mm. down the line. And you don't need to be an expert in, in any given field to be a mentor. You just need to know more than the person you're teaching. Yeah, absolutely. That's really cool. That's awesome to hear sort of where, where things started for both of you. Um, shall we talk about this in training New Zealand's 3,000-meter peaks? Do you want to sort of break that down and tell me what that means? I hadn't heard the word in training before, before this. Yeah, it comes from this French word, enchaînement, which is like linking peaks. Okay. You know. Am I completely butchering the pronunciation then? <laughs> oh, you know, we, in English, I think it's enchainment. Okay. We're trying to popularize the term. But um, it's a thing that they, I believe, was invented in European Alps where initially the, 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 the most natural challenge is to climb one peak via the easiest route. Mm-hmm. And then once you've you've made the first ascent of a mountain, then you look for harder ways to climb the mountain. Mm-hmm. So you you look for the steepest routes on the faces, typically, and then you climb them in winter. And then once you've done all of that, you're still looking for new challenges. You think, imagine if we can climb one peak into the next, into the next, and climb multiple peaks all yeah. in one outing. So examples in Europe are sort of linking all of the six north phases of six most famous peaks in the Alps, one after the other. That's really cool. And doing it in a continuous push. And I'd heard about this um, sort of thing happening in Europe, and I thought, you know, it'd be cool to see if we can do something similar in New Zealand. That's awesome. So you had the idea – and how did you manage to rope Hamish in? Yeah, a friend of mine, Penny Webster, gave me this idea at one of these Alpine Club meetings. Yeah. She was writing this book um, about 3,000 meter peaks and she wanted to include a chapter on this topic. She was also an adventure racer back in her day. Um, so she gave me the idea and, and I, I thought I needed someone who had sort of some technical skills, but mainly fitness and mm-hmm. motivation and positive attitude, that sort of thing. That's really cool. So Hamish was the first person I asked. What was what was that call like, Hamish, when, when Alistair reached out to you and asked if you would be keen and what were your initial thoughts? Well, it was actually really good timing. I I, I just watched a, um, a 
a sort of a, a short film by Uli Steck about climbing all of the yeah. um, 4,000 meter peaks in Europe. And um, I really like this idea of uh, sort of linking physical endurance and fitness um, with this uh, sort of alpinism and, and mountain climbing. So um, when Alistair called me, I, I was, uh, I was stoked. I was super keen to be a part of it. And I thought the idea sounded amazing. I think uh, I was also rather naive in my knowledge of exactly what I was signing up to, um, which was which was great. You know, it was I knew Alistair had a lot of a lot of skill and a lot of experience, and I thought if he if he thought it was possible to do this trip, then I was certainly up for it. That's awesome. Um, do you want to break it down and tell us what happened next? How did it start? How much prep was there? Uh, yeah, so. Lots of uh, lots of prep. We, I, I forget exactly how long before. It must have been about eight months before the trip wow. actually started that Alistair yeah, reached out. it was out. in May and we started in November. Okay. So yeah. we had a good amount of time, about six yeah. months to plan. Yeah. But, yeah, we did a few uh, trips. Al and I had got out on a few adventures just um, around Queenstown and, and the Darrens and mm-hmm. um, done a bit of climbing together, which was uh, very important to sort of build that partnership. Um and then as we got closer to actually departing on the Spurg Adventure, we had to do a few things like drop food into certain huts yeah. and yeah. Um, yeah, arrange some logistics with other friends and things as well and uh, get them to deliver some food because we had food drops at all of the different huts along the way. So that was sort of the big setup. And um, mm-hmm. we both quite enjoyed uh, stashing our bikes in uh, one of the huts there at, in Mount Cook Village. Yeah. Um, we both uh, sort of found it quite almost hilarious to be parking our bikes under the bunks in this little hut and uh, with the <laughs> idea that we'd be climbing 23 of the 24 peaks um, before getting to our bikes to then bike wow. to Nunnaspiring to wow. finish the journey. And at the time, we just, you know, it was like, whatever, this isn't going to happen, but oh, well, got to have the bikes <laughs> here in case, you know. So it's all very hard to believe uh, that you're going to achieve it until – until it happens and um yeah. and definitely setting off on the journey we we both i think had the mindset that if even if we completed any part of this uh sort of big big adventure you know we'd be happy with that anyway so mm. um and i think that was helpful to not be you know we were super motivated to achieve uh mm. the the goal that we'd set ourselves but we also uh you know had it in our minds that if if it didn't work out like we were still okay with that yeah, I think that that kind of mindset is really important not to be too hard on yourself, but also to to have the sort of motivation and willpower to give it your best. Yeah, because the first half of the trip was all places that we'd never been, you know, okay. Copeland, Sefton over La Perouse, Empress, and then this traverse over to the Fox Glacier. We thought, hey, even if we just do that first half, we'll be pretty stoked because that's yeah. an epic um, trip in its own right, even if that takes the whole month. So I think that was really important, not being, you know, obsessed with completing it. Mm. It's almost, I was telling people that probably wouldn't climb all the peaks. We just wanted to see how many we could do. Mm. So we left it open-ended yeah. and then there was no pressure on ourselves. Yeah. Well, that's really cool. So there were 24 peaks. Is, is that right? Yep. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, and you did end up climbing all of them. 
Yeah, so there's a few different lists. There used to be the 17 and 10,000 footers back <laughs> okay. in the material age, and then um, and then it became the the 3,000-meter peaks, 24 yeah. of them. Um, some peaks like Araki Mount Cook have three high peaks, mm-hmm. or three separate peaks, the high, middle, and low. So there's a few various lists, but we wanted to do just the 24 named highest peaks. Okay. I did actually do a quick Google of um, how high Mount Jopehu is, and it's just under that that 3,000, isn't it? So lucky for you guys. Otherwise, it would have been a um, cycle and a kayak and another cycle. That's right. All all 23 23 out of 24 are all in the Cook region. Mm -hmm. We've got clustered together, and it's just to detail Mount Aspiring, which is outside of that area that's hence hence the bike ride. Yeah. No, that's really cool to hear. Um, Did you have much support along the way apart from those like food drops? Was was there anything else? Was there a team that was supporting you or people that met you at certain points? Yeah, we we were very lucky that my um, partner, Beate, she drove us to the start of the trip at the Copenhagen. And she set yeah. us off there, and then um, she also met us at. Uh, well, she actually ran in a little bit from Mount Cook Village and met us along the trail there, um, and then supported us on the bike ride as well, right through to the finish. So that was pretty. Oh, that's awesome! Yeah, yeah, pretty important to have have that uh, support. To yeah, we didn't actually like we didn't bike with our backpacks and all our mountaineering gear, so mm-hmm. we could put it in the car. And it was super nice to be detached from it all for so long. You know, that was definitely a, a great experience of this um, trip was to be immersed in this mm. in this like rather simple world for, for such mm. a long time. You wake up in the morning, your goal was to climb a, a mountain and then mm-hmm. you go to sleep and then do that again the next day and just repeat. Um, you know, for uh yeah, thirty one days was the whole whole trip. So thirty one days, wow. Yeah. So that's that's pretty much a, a summit every day. Well they would come in bursts like mm-hmm. um, there was one section we called the Hickster Haas Traverse which went from the Hocker Valley over to the Fox Glacier, and that mm-hmm. took in 11 peaks over two days. Wow. We're all right um, along a continuous ridgeline along the main divide. How how many hours was that day in particular? Uh, that was over two days. It was a 20-hour day and then a camp on the, on the ridge and then yeah. another 16-hour day. So they came in bursts. Um, yeah. Most days we'd get just one or two during the movement and then you'd have a storm so you'd be stuck in a hut for three days um, not moving. Yeah. Wow, that's really, really fascinating. Um, how many of these peaks had you summited before you sort of went out to, to entrain them? Uh, for me, I'd climbed about 11 of them. Okay. So yeah. Most half. And I've done some of the peaks like Aspiring and Araki Mount Cook multiple times. Yeah. Because there's so many interesting routes on those. But then I started to think oh, I, sh- I should force myself to go climb all of the more obscure peaks. Mm-hmm. I sort of had that feeling, you know, like I need an excuse to go do all the, the other peaks just to see them. And, and some of them uh, you wouldn't go set out to do in their own right, like yeah. Malaspina. Who's ever heard of Malaspina? It's not really a peak that you set out to climb as an objective. <laughs> it's, it's a very obscure peak on a ridge. But all of a sudden you discover all these obscure peaks and amazing vantage points mm-hmm. by just by having that that 
almost arbitrary goal, but I started to realize that even if a goal is arbitrary, you know, 3,000 meter limit, you know, what does that even mean? What's wrong with 2,900? It doesn't really matter. You just have to create some sort of goal and stick to it. And Mm -hmm. whatever gets you out the door and motivates you, that's what's important. That's really cool. What were some of the biggest challenges that you guys faced? Yeah, that's a tough. It's, there's multiple challenges on the trip. Definitely, mm. the sustained uh, sort of endurance was was one of the big challenges. Um, mm. uh, but like Alistair said, you know these things would come in big pushes, and so we would definitely tap into a lot of our um, sort of adventure racing and and endurance backgrounds, and and that's where our team was very good because we could move fast when we needed to. Yeah, um, and we had. Uh, good knowledge on how to fuel ourselves and sort of manage ourselves as we move through the terrain. Um, so we could go really hard for a few days and then we could rest really hard as well mm. and just repeat that cycle. So mm-hmm. we actually got far fitter by the time we got to the, you know, back half of the trip. I think we were much, much stronger than we were at the start. So while it was very challenging, there were definitely times where, I mean, I remember waking up at midnight, like for like the third night in a row and just kind of being like, oh my gosh, we're going to go climb another one of these mountains, and like, <laughs> really like open my eyes, and you know, as long as you kind of got moving and got through it, you'd you'd sort of uh, you make it to the next next sort of rest window as the next storm rolled in, and and you'd and yeah. you'd sort of be uh, celebrating the fact that the good weather was over. Um, so yeah, we, we were really lucky in the way that yeah, we 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 sort of got these uh, clearances and and good mm. weather windows when we needed them, but then we also had the storms. And I think if we didn't get the storms, you know, just as much as if we didn't get the good weather, the trip wouldn't have been as successful as what it was. Mm, that's Temptation so interesting. pushing would have been there and we, would, we probably would have had to because we would have known, you know, you've got to make the most of every good day. So the rest yeah. seemed to come at the right time. It was really cool. Uh, right at the start of the trip, the, the weather looked really dubious. There was sort of five days bad weather. And Hamish spotted a really narrow weather window, which we managed to snag um, Mount Sefton and awful weather but if we hadn't taken that really small opportunity it would have thrown everything else out okay and yeah you had to really just make the most of each tiny opportunity because when you're doing these link ups it has all these knock-on effects Mm -hmm. so i think we just rode this right on the edge of this wave of just staying in in time and then the weather windows seemed to mesh towards what we needed kind of quite cool playing that um that game yeah that's super interesting um two questions about weather the first is food and how did you sort of account for that like i suppose you wouldn't have known when you set out when you were going to have bad weather so if you're having three days in one place how did how did that work yeah, you just have to have a bit of a buffer okay. and we put it pretty much put seven days of food in each hut. So okay. that's Empress Hut, Piney Hut, Centennial, Tasman Saddle, and Plateau. Yeah. And then we had some food for aspiring at the end. Um, and some of those food drops, like an Empress Hut, we needed all of that food. Because mm. when we got there, we had three days of rest mm-hmm. in a storm. Uh, and then a two-day push. Um, so we, we only 
often only needed two or three days worth for the movement part. Okay, yeah. Um, but, you, yeah, you never know how many days you're going to be stormed in, so you just put heaps extra. But in these yeah. huts is often um, hut food, free food left behind okay. by previous yeah. climbers. And and you can always ration, start rationing. But yeah. we did quite well. We never really went hungry. I had to count our, yep. count our food out. Well, that's good to hear. Yeah, I'd say uh, because kind of the opposite thing happened and I think um, there would be a few parties turning up to these huts post our trip, uh, <laughs> sort of just, you know, eating like kings really. I, I, I talked to some people who said they found a huge bag of our muesli bars in Centennial. Oh, that's yeah, amazing. Yeah. <laughs> um, the second question, with the weather, um, did you? how did you know what was coming in? Did you? How did you know the weather forecast? Uh, so we, we had an in-reach. Um, device, so that's like a Garmin satellite communication. Yeah, so we would yeah. actually be texting a few uh, close contacts, mm-hmm. and um, yeah. So again, my partner Beata, she was very good at giving us forecasts, and then also a friend of mine who um, does a lot of paragliding uh, was also giving us some information as well. But um, between that and the uh, and the sort of the hut radios too, you could get a fair idea of what was going on. Yeah, um, but it was also kind of refreshing to have that part of the decision-making, not really sort of up to us to some degree. Like we'd get these sort of mm. messages saying, it looks good from tomorrow for three days. Yeah, <laughs> and yeah. Normally, normally you're kind of going, okay, so what's the wind? What's the freezing level? Like, you know, where's the weather coming from? When's the next storm? But we just go, yeah, okay, <laughs> and just like go for it, you know? And um, so we were very trusting of our – of our forecasters, which is um, which is great. We had had you know the people behind us. There was another yeah. big part of the support that we received, really. Oh, that's really cool, and I suppose it's quite important for well your partner and your other loved ones to sort of know that you're safe out there. Um, so that's that's really cool that you did have that communication with them. Yeah, that was nice. Yeah. Um, what were some of your favorite moments? It's probably hard to pick a couple out, but if you can, what were some of those sort of pinch me moments during during the trip? Um, yeah, it's, it is hard to pick them out, but things like um, arriving at Empress Hut at the same time as this other party of four. Okay. We see, you know, we're abseiling off Harper Saddle in a whiteout and we haven't seen anyone for a week. And then we could see this party of four approaching the hut. And we thought, oh, I wonder if we know them. And then it turns out to be um, friends of mine, um, mountain guides that, that I knew. And we, we spent three days in the hut all just chatting and laughing and having a, a really sociable time in this high mountain hut during the storm. It was actually quite cool. You know, it's those those um, human moments in between mm. all of the, the summits and sharing your stories, which is mm. cool. Yeah. Yeah. And another moment that definitely springs to mind is um, when we were climbing uh, Malta Brun, uh, the same mm-hmm. peak that Alistair had tried 10 years earlier with his uh, mentor back then. Um, we, we were climbing up through quite, quite dubious weather and it, it was still kind of overcast down low, but eventually we, we climbed out of the cloud layer and we were greeted to this just amazing, amazing view, looking over this cloud base and uh, just seeing all of the 3,000-meter peaks sticking above the cloud. Wow. So it was almost like everything else had been obscured except all those mountains that we'd actually already climbed or were yet to climb. So yeah, yeah that still sticks in my mind as a, as a really uh, amazing 
day and an amazing image. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's one of those fortune favors the bold type uh, moments where you don't know whether the weather, what the weather's doing, but you, we had we had to go. We didn't have any spare time, mm-hmm. any other spare days to climb that mountain, so we just had to set out and hope that it would um, resolve itself. And then, sure enough, it did. Yeah, and that, that's kind of one of the things that was also quite special about this trip is we were committed to being out in the mountains for this extended period. And so, mm-hmm. you know, if you were just heading in to climb any particular mountain on any particular day, you, you probably wouldn't choose uh, to, to go in in the weather that we often were able to climb in. So, mm-hmm. you know, we were there, we were at the base of the mountain, and we could make the most of these really small windows of opportunity, um, going light and fast to really snatch and grab some of these peaks. And yeah. um, that had its own risks, obviously, with weather changing uh and conditions mm-hmm. not being ideal sometimes, but it also had its uh, its perks by creating very sort of amazing sort of atmospheric environments where you know you got to see these mountains in a in a different way. You weren't just out there on the perfect bluebird day every time. It was mm. sometimes a little bit murky, a bit cloudy, a bit ominous, a bit windy, and and uh, yeah, that yeah. that was also really cool. I thought it was amazing how how often we'd get average weather when the peaks were quite easy, like Hamilton and Dixon. Sefton, they're all relatively easy peaks. Technically, we got really bad weather on those, but then the the, the harder peaks like Torres and Hicks, we got the perfect weather. So that just always seemed quite fortunate. Yeah. But Hamish is right. You know, you, you often wouldn't go climb these peaks in those weather forecasts. And yeah. thought I can cook 65 kilometer an hour northwesterlies forecast, but we had to try and mm-hmm. just see, be willing to turn back. And most people said, oh, you know, November, December, that window, there was almost no weather windows because they were quite short and, you know, only, only a few hours, sometimes just mm. clear at dawn and then the rest of the day, mm. windy. So you had to be you had to be right there to see it. Yeah. Were there any quite hairy moments um, that you – or any times that you did have to turn around? I'd say the, the hairiest moment was on Sefton Road, <laughs> the second day climbing that, and the sleety rain. Okay. And we left the Douglas Rock Hut at 4 p.m. in order to try and um, climb to the summit during the clearance, which was supposed to be in through the middle of the night around 3 a.m. Yeah. Climb through the bush all afternoon. And we got really wet in the sleety rain, and then it got dark, and then we're in the glacier, and then it's turning to to snow almost, and all the rain's freezing on our clothing. We're wearing every piece of clothing we have, even our down yeah. jackets underneath the rain jackets, just shivering. You know, we stopped for two minutes to put the rope on. It would take ten minutes to stop shivering after that. Wow! <laughs> so we're right on the edge of what we could handle. Um, Temperature-wise, um, but fortunately it was easy enough that we could just keep moving. But that was probably the most dangerous point of the whole trip, actually, just being so exposed and so far away, mm. climbing this peak in the middle of the night. We had to take some risk. That's the whole challenge of mountaineering, knowing how much risk you're yeah, willing to absolutely. take and can get away with, and it's – Different for everyone. Everyone has different levels of risk they're willing to accept. 
and the the more experience you have, the less the risk is, isn't it? Because you're you're more sort of you've got the skills to deal with those sort of more challenging environments. And some of them you do, others like objective hazards like rockfall, icefall, mm. seracs, avalanches. You can you can try and outsmart them to some degree, but you are still playing with chaos. You can't control yeah. everything. Yeah, absolutely. You can't, can't control every single factor. Um, what surprised you guys the most, either during the trip or at the end of it, when you look back? Completing it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Good answer. Uh, good answer. <laughs> I didn't think uh, that would actually be possible, and the whole time we were sort of. Uh, planning out the next week, you know, seeing if we had enough time, if we were on schedule mm -hmm. and mapping out according to the weather windows we thought we had, what we'd have to do in order to complete it. And it was always like very close to the wire. Mm, that's really cool. Um, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think you guys are the first people to, to actually do this. Is, is that right? Yeah, um, Gavin Lang's got this book um, called Seeking the Light, okay. which is a great book you should all buy, it, by the way. And um, he's sort of done history on who, who's climbed the peaks. And okay. according to him, there's um, the 12th and 13th people to climb all the 3,000-meter peaks. Okay, but no most, one else has enchained them. No, most people set this as like a, a long-term goal and they pick them mm. off over the course of sort of a climbing career. Yeah. Maybe maybe we'll see more people trying to do them all in, all in one go. Yeah. Well, do you have any advice for people that are wanting to follow in your footsteps? Probably to start doing trips to the individual peaks and start piecing some parts of the puzzle together. Because mm. um, in some places like the Hicks to Haas Traverse, which goes over 11 peaks, I'd done maybe half of those that ridge line and separate over the course of separate trips. And it was like mm -hmm. piecing together all these moments of deja vu one yeah. one piece at a time and linking it all up. So you've got to get familiar with that kind of terrain. Mm. It's sort of similar to rock climbing when you've when you've got a route that's challenging and you're trying to practice all the different moves and the different cruxes in a route and it just takes practice to sort of put those pieces together until you can do the, the whole thing. <laughs> yeah. At first you can't even do one move and, yeah. then move and then you get another move and then you try to link them together. Yeah. Well, that's really cool. Do you have any advice, Hamish? I mean, yeah. So we didn't mention before when Alice was talking about how many of these peaks he'd climbed uh, previous to the expedition. I, I'd only climbed one. And okay. uh, that's Mount Aspiring, local to me yeah. here in Queenstown. And so, um, yeah, I, I mean, my perspective on this was that I was very lucky to have someone uh, with the, with experience to, to uh, yeah, share that knowledge of, you know, he'd been in these areas before and he had the big master plan uh, in his mind about where we were going. And so, yeah, you know, sometimes it was just about hanging on for the ride. <laughs> Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, pick, pick, pick your partners wisely. <laughs> I think it, that applies to both of us. Um, having someone you really trust, um, get along mm. with over over a long period of time, and someone you can 
just laugh during the hard moments. Someone who enjoys the suffering, who doesn't <laughs> complain too much when it gets really hard, if you can just sort of enjoy those uncomfortable moments mm. and say, is that, is that all? Is that it? <laughs> is that all you got? Because you do go a bit nutty on these things <laughs> after a while. Well, I can imagine if, it, if you're just with each other, then, yeah, definitely got to pick your your alpining buddy well. Mm. Um, what's next on your guys' adventure bucket list? Are there what, – what's after this? Do you have any more mountains that you want to climb in New Zealand or do you want to go further afield or um, – I've done a bit of climbing overseas in places like uh, Peru and Europe and, and things, but I've never been to the mm-hmm. Himalaya, so – I'm quite okay. keen to sample some of the Himalayan climbing. Yeah. And um, we're in the process of planning a trip to Makalu, which is near Everest for okay. next year. So we'll see if we can make that happen. But that trekking in, trekking in through the mountains, through the rural landscapes and, you know, seeing a different culture and meeting the different people yeah to western society i think is is much part of the the appeal of going to those far-flung places just yeah. an appreciation of how other people live um what's next for you hamish uh well i feel like uh i would like to do a lot more climbing within new zealand as well and you know, mm. for me, this trip was like a bit of a whirlwind experience climbing all of these peaks for the first time, and mm. there's uh, so much room to go back and uh, climb some of the more challenging routes on these same peaks that we've already climbed, and and also yeah. more more remote peaks as well. And you know, there's, there's so many options in New Zealand. We're very lucky to have an extensive uh, range of of amazing peaks. Um, mm. But yeah, um, I'm I'm in with Al, and uh, we're we're yeah looking at Makaloon next year. So. Um, yeah, it seems like a long way off at this stage and uh, there's lots to figure out between now and then, but we'll uh, yeah keep working towards that and see how we go. Yeah. Um, how do your adventures sort of work around your jobs? Um, do you both work full-time? What does that look like? I do sort of remote engineering consulting okay. and um, probably abuse my freedom a little bit too much. <laughs> But I, um, I used to work in Sydney um, consulting with um, solar hot water and heat pump companies over there and I brought the job back to New Zealand. Okay. Um, it's a bit of a strange setup, but I just work from my laptop yeah. from wherever. It, it helps because you can go on a few, few more road trips than you might otherwise manage and then just tap away from wherever you can get Wi-Fi or a hotspot. Yeah. Yeah, and um, I work in tourism in Queenstown here. Um, one of the owners of a, a bike uh, hire and tours and shuttle company. And um, yeah. so, yeah, so it's always a bit of a juggling act to get time off and things when you need it because often mm-hmm. uh, our busy times are when everyone else has holidays. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, there's certain times of the year where it's harder than others and then there's some times of the year where it's much easier and, um, yeah, I can I can juggle things uh, often to to work with what what the plans are, but um, yeah, it's always like all of life. It's a bit of a balancing act. Yeah, absolutely. I suppose that would be a bit tricky as well because those better weather windows when you want to be outdoors, having your own adventures, is when everyone else is in Queenstown wanting to 
yeah, yeah. get amongst the tourism down there. So, yeah, it definitely sounds like a juggling act. I guess that's where COVID kind of helped me a little bit for this trip. I think it was quite easy yeah. to get time off when we, uh, yeah. when we were so quiet during this uh, pandemic time. So it's great to make the most of that, eh? Mm. Well, I wish we could keep going, but um, we should probably wrap up because that clock has just ticked over 46. <laughs> um, do you guys have any sort of final advice um, for anyone that wants to start getting into alpining or people that want to take alpining to the next level? I would say um, you've got to join a club. So find wherever you live, um, the local tramping or mountaineering or alpine club. Uh, if you're in Christchurch, you should join the CMC. It's the best club around. <laughs> Otherwise, there's um, New Zealand Alpine Club sections all across the country. And then you should just start going on, um, if you haven't done any mountaineering before, go on a basic course and then get out on the club trips and just meet people. And the most important training for mountaineering is the physical uh, endurance, so lots of running and hiking. If you can, if you're struggling to find people to take you out on trips, you're starting out. The best thing you can do is just get super fit, because mm. even if you don't have the technical skills, at least if you can keep up with people, then more experienced people will be more likely to drag you along, like Hamish, you know, <laughs> and he was super fit. So yeah. it doesn't matter if he couldn't lead anything as long as he could just never is never tired. So, so if you yeah. Really, fit and you're really enthusiastic then more experienced people will take you out and you will learn way faster mm. than if you're dragging the chain <laughs> so start running now that's awesome advice and i think a lot of people don't realize that anyone can actually join the university clubs they have a quota that's open to non-students as well i'm pretty yeah, sure so most of the universities so yeah get yeah, amongst it clubs and salt of the earth Awesome. Where can people find you online, on the internet or on socials if they want to connect with you or maybe look back on some of your pictures or some of your adventures? Probably see on the New Zealand Alpine team, uh, it's channels. Um, it's where I contribute um, part of my adventures. Awesome. Yeah, and I guess um, we, we do actually have a film coming out about this expedition. It's uh, going to be primary premiering on the 22nd um uh, we had a friend um nick kowalski's put heaps of effort into the editing and mm -hmm. did a few interviews and all that kind of thing that's really cool all together well i'd love to see that when it's when it's out thank you so much both of you it's been um really phenomenal to sort of hear the whole story right from your childhood and where things started to in chaining New Zealand's 3,000 metre peaks um, and all the all the excitement in between and all the challenges. So thank you so much, Alistair and Hamish. Yeah, no worries. Yeah, cheers. Thank you. This was such an epic episode and it was inspiring to hear how Alistair and Hamish started alpining and how it led them to complete this incredible feat, summoning 24 peaks with human power, walking and cycling between them all. I loved hearing their attitude towards this challenge and how it was more about the process than the end goal. The documentary is recently premiered, so head to the description to check it out. Thank you so much for tuning in and coming along for the ride. If you love the show and enjoyed listening, please take the time to leave a review on Apple or Spotify. 
I would also love to connect with you so send me a DM on Instagram or leave me a voice message and I can't wait to see you next time. Until then, keep adventuring. Did you guys do the um, filming for that yourselves or how did the film come yeah, about? We filmed it with the GoPro and oh, yeah. I forgot one of the memory cards so we only had one GoPro <laughs> and Hamish's <laughs> phone. But I think we got some good footage out there. Most of it's from Hamish. <laughs> Looking boss. Yeah, the, the, good, uh, the good camera was in Alistair's hands so <laughs> it's quite funny. Yeah.